In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with the author of No Absolutes, a fascinating individual and a friend of mine. I'm I'm not afraid to call him a friend of mine. He's a great person. And we're going to get into some more ideas about No Absolutes and history and anything else that comes our way. Benjamin, is there you want to introduce yourself? Anything you want to start off with? Um, Yeah, actually, it looks like my live stream popped up. Uh, okay. And I'm getting a me in the background, so one second. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry about that. Ah, oh, no apologies, man. No absolutes, no apologies. It happens. All right, there it we happens. go. <laughs> so we we uh, begin. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, no, no, please go ahead. So we began our momentary conversation before the podcast, talking about symbols, talking about it's almost like another language, these obtuse but familiar ideas that seem to be implanted in us by being bombarded on us. And I know a little bit about them, but I think it's a and you may think it's a nice segue into history can you, can you tell me a little bit about what you know about symbols or what do you think about some of those ideas sure well i mean you know symbology is all around us it's you know our writing is symbols right um which kind of goes back to you know words are important how we think are important you know uh because that symbology is it's very powerful we're, we're attached to symbology inextricably um, you know, you touched on it in a video that you made yesterday, I believe. Uh, but you know, we have ancient symbols that have traversed the world and yet we don't, we don't really have a good meaning of what they are. Um, <clears throat> and you know, one of those symbols is that swastika, swastika symbol, which it happens in the one you showed was the, the East Indian one. Um, uh, but 
it occurs in indigenous tribes across the world. Uh, and from my understanding, a lot of those indigenous tribes use that as kind of like a signifier for the seasons and the changing of the seasons before the hemispheres, you know, the segments of it. Um, and then the dots would represent the equinoxes. Uh, and that was also a tool for how they constructed structures to orient them into the right directions, too. Um, and, you know, that's just one of how many hundreds, if not thousands of symbols that that are all around us. Uh, another one you pointed to was the Starbucks one. And I recall, I'm not, it was a few years ago, but I think somebody did a dive on that. And it goes back to um, Zoroastrianism, I think. Uh, and it was uh, the god Mina, goddess Mina, the sea or something like that. So, it, you know, it's really interesting that we see a symbol like that pop up today and we see them all around. You know, CERN just turned on and they have a symbol of Shiva in front of CERN. You know, um, and then we have less familiar ones, of course, but our history is replete with symbols. Uh, and so I wanted to segue that into, you know, kind of the history of things. Uh, in my book, I just did a brief history of things. And since then, I've done a lot more research. And, you know, it really seems to me that there's a cyclical kind of nature to what we call society. Um, what we call our ancient societies are actually, from the evidence that I've been exposed to and have researched, uh, they're kind of a re-pop-up of civilization after the late, the last cataclysm, which, I, how familiar are you with, like, the Younger Dryas period? I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. I've seen a lot of, like, Charles Hapgood's work on uh, mm -hmm. catastrophism and... You know, I've seen some interesting maps in the ancient maps of the Sea Kings. There's a great book by uh, called The Adam and Eve Story that mm -hmm. is all about cataclysm. So I'm kind of familiar, but I I'm sure you can enlighten me and the audience with with some of the Younger Dryas information. Well, um, so a lot of uh, like there's Randall Carlson and, um, uh, you know, he's a big proponent that there was an impactor event. The more and more I've researched into that. I think there definitely was an impactor, but I don't think it was caused from a comet. I actually think it was ejected from the sun. Um, and it's really interesting when we start to look at like the oldest structures in the world. You know, you, we have all of these polygonal walls. We have all of these pyramidal structures. You know, they just discovered a huge pyramid under the water off the coast of uh, Portugal heading towards the Azores. Uh, and I noticed you have Atlantis in, in your map back there. <laughs> um, but when, and all, all we're finding is more and more evidence of this. And it's older and older and older. Um, you know, you got Gobekli Tepe, Karahan Tepe, which are all, you know, dated to 11,800 or BC. Um, you have all these really ancient sites that are just getting older and older and older. And then there's another phenomena where some of the technology that is used to build these sites is seemingly more and more advanced. You know, we, you know, the polygonal walls in down in Peru, you know, even the, the Great Pyramid, we couldn't recreate those structures today, even with modern technology. 
um, you know, there might be some engineers who say I could do it, but by and large, you know, the other, the other side of that equation is, could you get societal will? Could you get the funding? Could you, you know, could you orient the labor to do something like that for that kind of undertaking? And so what are the purpose of those things? And, you know, they're all claimed to be barrel chambers by what we're taught in textbooks from, you know, high school. Uh, the one thing that's consistent across all the world where we find these things, these megalithic structures is there's no inscriptions, there's no writing on the wall. And if it was some sort of burial chamber, religious thing, there's usually all sorts of adornments to those types of structures. And we just don't see that. So then that begs the question, well, why don't we see that? And my hypothesis is that these are actually more machines than they are just structures. Um, you know, there's electric potential between different types of rocks that are used. Uh, there's all sorts of evidence that <clears throat> these things have some sort of greater purpose than just a giant monument to a god or, you know, a, a sacrificial chamber for a pharaoh. Uh, and it's really interesting when you start to correlate that evidence with evidence of cyclical disasters on this planet. Um, <clears throat> I did have a good point to that. <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, so, and, you know, now we're learning about all sorts of different cycles on this planet. There's a seven-year oscillation in the core from, uh, of magnetism. Um, we know that the magnetic poles are continually moving uh, and they've started moving in certain directions and they haven't checked back and now they're pretty far off kilter. Um, there's a lot of hypotheses of, you know, uh, pole flipping, crustal displacement, all of these things. Uh, but when you look, correlate that with ge geologic records, we see magnetic shifts in the geologic record every 13 some thousand years, which is about the younger Dryas area and then uh, attached to that you had so the hypothesis is, is Atlantis is what it's typically called these days was a global civilization um, there's genetic record to back that up now uh, there's a lot of you know the mines in Wisconsin where did all the copper go um, you know there's a lot of a lot of these pieces of evidence that are starting to stack up that really don't correlate with Oh yeah, history began, you know, 7,000 years ago and here we are today. And I think this is an important aspect of kind of understanding our place in, you know, the world. Because if you don't know where you're where you come from, it's kind of hard to know where you're going to. And <clears throat> so you have this global civilization that experiences a disaster. And then we see pockets of civilization kind of erupt about, you know, 7,000 BC. And those pockets of civilization, my hypothesis is, is those were the remnants of a previous protoculture that had already colonized the globe, essentially. And I think that was a, and then when you start to look at like Sumerian, Sumerian texts and like the, the ancient king's list, um, you know, how long their rules were. It's kind of, you know, it's like, well, yeah, somebody could just make that up, but why would they inscribe it in stone? <laughs> uh, we have these pieces of evidence that continually are telling us that, oh, no, human life is quite a bit older than we ascribe to it. And 
it was actually potentially even more advanced in the past. And, and I think, you know, tying it back to the book, No Absolutes, is that once you get that perspective that, oh, maybe, you know, we aren't just kind of flittering in the sand here. We actually are part of a, a long lineage of things. And these events were not only known about, but they were inscribed across the world in these symbols. And so there's also some other interesting little things that we can segue. I'll just mention them if you want to rabbit hole. Uh, you know, sunspots on the sun, whenever the sun has these massive sunspots, we see them flaring on the backsides. We have the satellites up there now. But they have a really strong correlation of decreasing intensity whenever, whenever they're facing Earth. So if, you know, and this is getting really out there, but if I was to build a big global machine that was to try to stop these, you know, the cyclical disaster, well, you need something that's monumental and you need it to be energetically driven. It needs to interact with the electromagnetic spectrum and it needs to create potentials and fields and all these things. And I, I suspect that at one point there was a group of people on this planet who understood that. And they built all those ancient megaliths and monoliths to basically stabilize the earth. And I think that system broke. And I think that's the story of the fall of Atlantis, uh, and, you know, combined with the other parts of it. And I, and I think we're kind of in a recovery mode since then, kind of attaching back to the yuga cycles. Um, and then you have the indigenous peoples across the world, you know, the ant people took them into the earth and brought them out. And this was the fourth time they had done it. Um, we have a lot of these really old stories that kind of indicate that there is a cyclical disaster that impacts this planet. And I think, you know, that's kind of an important aspect to keep in mind when we, we look at the world, because the idea is that, oh, we already, that's settled science, right? They taught it to me in school, which settled science in itself is that's, you know, science is never settled. That's right. the whole point of it. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just like it, it's right up there with trust the science. It's like, OK, <laughs> you know, it, there's there's a lot of problems inherent in our symbology when we start to use words like that, use words in our symbols in those ways, it creates improper pictures, it creates derision, it creates, you know, me versus you, tribe versus tribe, all of these other things that we see plaguing the world pretty consistently these days. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, it seems to me, well, let me, let me try to segue like this. You say in your book, if our observations constantly show the fluidity of existence and the constant fleetingness of rigidity, then why do we adhere to strongly to and perspectives that offer no flexibility? And when I apply that to history, the one thing about history that seems to be true is that we always get it wrong. The, the <laughs> planets are not in glass spheres. We're not the center of the universe. You know, mm -hmm. we... And if we always get it wrong, doesn't that probably mean that we're wrong now? You know, and it seems to me, if you look at humanity as a society that's building back, it's all in the language. Like everything's in the language. Let's build back better. The industrial revolution, like these are things that had already been done and we're just mm -hmm. repeating them. It is that cycle. And mm -hmm. I, I would add to your point that, you know, there's so much, 
better ways to measure time than a clock. Like if you look at the planets, in the book I was reading, the Adam and Eve story, they talk about a cataclysm happening like every 12,000 years. And when they look to the Zodiac, you know, you can see signs. For example, we're in the age of Aquarius. Aquarius is the water bearer. Mm -hmm. I always ask myself, if I am a society, like how do I come to the conclusion that I'm going to draw this giant person in the sky dropping water, buckets of water, huge buckets of water? That seems to me like a flood is coming. Like we mm -hmm. made this thing for you dummies in the future and you're not even paying attention to it. You know, like that's a pretty intricate, incredible idea to to create a lasting symbol or image that will last for eternity to tell people. That is something that we can't do today, but it's there for us. And so mm -hmm. I would agree with your ideas on that. I, 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 I believe. Well, and interesting on top of that, you know, the Zodiac isn't just a single phenomenon. Like, you know, there's multiple indigenous tribes. There's multiple found refoundings of society that all you know, have a version of the Zodiac and they're all very strongly consistent with the depictions, even if the, the actual star arrangements are a little different, the, the, you know, the, what that entity is supposed to represent or what that symbology is supposed to represent is consistent. And so that would, you know, to me suggest that that had to come from some sort of proto culture that had a consistency. And then after it was fractured, you know, they tried to, with the resources that they had, because now all of your infrastructure is completely destroyed, they tried to refound re society, but also at the same time, create, a, you know, a consistent symbology to try to explain a story, the human story, as it were. Yeah. I think Velikovsky has written quite a bit on this too. He talks about a people of the sea, which reminds me of, of, you know, that little bag, like Quetzalcoatl carries it. The mm -hmm. Egyptian Pharaohs carry it. It seems to me Man. like maybe they hit up their own seed vault, wherever their seed vault was. And here they are going and teaching people to, you know, to farm the land and teaching agriculture, which would be the first thing you do after mm -hmm. a cataclysm. Right. And we mm -hmm. have seed vaults. Like we have that infrastructure. Like, so it's not, and it, just to add to that, too, sometimes it seems to me that all this technology ideas, they're, I, they're not original ideas. They're ideas that people pick up on, whether it's a symbol or if you listen to some of the greatest minds, mm -hmm. they always say things like, oh, I, I heard a voice or it was given to me, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it seems like those symbols and those ideas have, have always been here. You know, I, I like what you said in the book, too, about a river's route changes over time, and that change allows life to flourish. Why would our lives be any different? Can Indeed. you explain that a little bit? Well, you know, and this goes into as above, so below, like we mentioned a little bit before. But we, we have these systems all around us. And these systems are, you know, even though we may not understand them at first observation or even looking at them for 20 years, if you can view them from a, you know, and pull yourself back from a 10,000 foot perspective and look down at this thing and then able to fast forward time at your will, you would see a whole flourishing of, you know, life and death and regrowth and all of these things. But along that pathway, there's a consistency of, you know, an ecosystem that's growing and, and evolving. And 
if you could stretch out even further and look down at humanity and, and turn the time dial up backward and forward, you would be able to see a similar pattern. Um, we, you know, we're constantly ebbing and flowing with the river, multiple rivers, as it were, but the river of time, ultimately. And that cyclical nature plays into that and it plays into everything that we observe. I mean, there's not a single system that you can observe that doesn't have a cyclical or a helical type nature to it. Um, you know, even when we're talking about, you know, the smallest things like, you know, magnetic fields and things like that, you know, all of our electrons, they have spin, they have, you know, we have uh, toroidal fields around everything that we call magnets. We have toroidal fields that kind of encompass what our heliosphere is, what our solar system is, how, you know, the climate works on the planet. These are all con continual systems and energy goes into these systems at North and South Poles. Um, there's a really interesting uh, study from, you know, uh, Neptune that w went cold and then got hot. And you can actually see the heat radiate from the poles down uh, Jupiter as well. And it's an induction from the sun. I mean, we got this giant ball of plasma up there generating Account, you know, untold amounts of energy. It's really hard for humans to fathom these scales, right? You know, for instance, at the equator, you're spinning a thousand miles an hour relative to the center of the Earth. And then, you know, we're cruising about 67,000 miles an hour around the sun. And then the sun is cruising, you know, some like, I think, 227,000 miles an hour around the galactic plane. We don't even know what that is, <laughs> even though I just said the numbers. We can't envision that, you know, 60 miles an hour. Things are going like this past the window. You know, you get to 100 miles an hour and you feel like you've never moved faster in your life. We have no recollection. We have no idea what a thousand miles or let alone, you know, 27,000 miles an hour. Uh, and so our relative ability to understand these scales, I think, really creates a big problem for a lot of people especially if you don't have the time in life and all you can read is a headline because now relative to what's actually happening the scale of all this stuff you know uh people are like they want to give you a personal uh a carbon counter <laughs> <You know? laughs> to count your carbon emissions whereas you know the idea that particulates in the atmosphere are governing this system that is so many orders of magnitude energetically greater than you you could pack the whole atmosphere with particulates and you still wouldn't even scratch the surface that this is all the generator of everything is a really to me absurd notion um you know we have and, and we have a lot of evidence growing to suggest how absurd it is but at the same time you know because of profits mostly we're moving down a pathway where all of a sudden you're going to be counted for, you know, how often, you, how often you pass gas and how many hamburgers you ate this week. Right. Yeah. Which is, and, and so, you know, we have some, when we don't understand the scale of these things, we are very inclined to move down these pathways that are detrimental to us for one, but, they remove us from that kind of ebb and flow of of 
reality and nature and our our relationship with nature yeah i agree i i often think that um the the movement for you know some of the ridiculous climate change people should be every breath you take every breath you take <laughs> we're gonna charge you every breath you take you know <laughs> yep like we don't do any studies on what the migration of the magnetic north pole does to climate we don't do any studies on what space wind does like we don't the truth is we don't know and i i can right. understand that sometimes i think that the purpose of history and these type of cultural movements is to unite everybody but they all it never does like global warming is a beautiful idea like hey let's all rally around we all care about the planet we can get behind that kind of like not if it's all bullshit we can't <laughs> because it's well, wrong well that's the problem i think is you know we and this is replete throughout society at, at multiple levels is it's hey look at this really good thing and people say well heck you know i'm a good person so yeah i like good things but then you know the questions are never asked who's doing the good thing uh who's you know where does the money actually go does the good thing actually happen uh a little kind of side for instance uh, i started a nonprofit, and as i was going through all the details for the state of colorado it gets to a line that says you have to spend five percent of your declared charitable cause on your charitable cause per year five percent so wow right and then you know i, I know from uh i went through a startup program thing uh and one of the startups in there was talking was working in the nonprofit world the nonprofit world's 400 and some billion dollar business yeah, all the I mean, billionaires, they they gave away all their money. They gave it away. They just gave it to themselves, right? It's just a right. fancy way of not paying taxes. Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, if I only have to spend 5% of my declared cost, my goodness, my goodness. So hey, that was just Colorado. I'm not, I'm not well-versed in all of that. But, I mean, if that's one state, I can imagine they're all relatively similar because sure. they're wanting to attract business. Uh, and they want that tax money ultimately, even if these, you know, even if it's a tax-free charity, there's always, yeah, they give kickbacks and that's, you know, that's a whole different rabbit hole. <laughs> but so we, you know, we have all of these people who are pulling strings and these declared groups and these causes and these spokes figures and all of this stuff. And it makes somebody feel good to be good. So they attach to these things. In the meantime, there's other people who go look at, well, who's actually pulling the shots? Who's calling the shots here? Who's, where's the money going? How's it being spent? Is there any long-term studies on, on benefits to this? Are there studies to the counter science? Are there, you know, what, how's all this working out? Most people don't have that time to go look at those things, right? And so now they're subjected to headlines and propaganda and narratives and people who want to influence the world and and by and large they're doing a really good job if you're objective about it <laughs> yeah absolutely that's what happens when you have all the money and you have the mm -hmm. the power of media it's it's such a powerful medium which takes us full which takes us right back to symbols the mm -hmm. idea that they can project a symbol into your 
living room when you're unconsciously watching or at specific times of the day where you where they know your you know the rate at which you think or what type of mood you're in and they can implant these ideas in you it's it's like a digital slavery almost you know in a weird sort of way they've captured your mind in a weird sort of way alex jones was right in that there's a war for your mind you know <laughs> well i mean they're absolutely there always has been too if, right. if we're looking at history right it's always it's always the the rulers trying to if not placate you know subjugate their populaces respectively and it usually doesn't start out like that it usually right. has benign means there's usually one person who's like oh yeah we're going to do great the next generation it usually falls out <laughs> pretty right. consistently right uh, so it's it's nothing new under the sun uh the problem is is that where we seem very inclined to want to repeat that cycle and tying this back to choice, what we were talking about last time, right. you know, all of these things influence our, our, our relative choices. Those symbols being injected into the room when you're feeling sad or when you're feeling happy, they, they are impacting what your, poten what your potential choices are. Uh, and you're not aware of it, by and large, right? Um, sometimes you are, because sometimes you're really engaged and focused, but most of the time you're not you you know we have the tv on in the background we have the radio on in the background uh an ad pops up in a youtube video uh you know all of these things and we know you know even though they don't like to admit it uh all these companies are all tapped into these microphones it's all being ran through an algorithm uh you're being served up ads that are relevant to your your experience and all of this other stuff which on the surface, just like, again, all of these other ideas that sound good on the surface, sure, this can be a fantastic thing. I would love to waste less time finding more relevant information to me and, and use that to better my life. Why not? I have more time to now spend with family and friends and, and research and go do other things. On the back end of it, again, who's pulling Who's pulling the trigger? Who's who's using this information? What are they using it for? And then, you know, we know that they sell it. Well, I didn't get a kickback for my information. I don't know about you, nope. uh, but I haven't seen a check from Google or Apple or AT&T or any of these other people who blatantly sell the information whenever they can. In fact, it's a massive revenue stream for most of these companies. Yeah. It, um, it reminds me of, of in some ways, I like what you did with choice. To, to me, you really laid out how it, it's not an absolute, it's not free will versus fate. It's both. And I, it reminds me, it kind of reminds me of that little limerick that Alan Watts used to say. There once was a man who said, damn, for it certainly seems that I am a being that moves in determinate grooves. I'm not even a bus. I'm a tram. But that being said, I have the infographics of choice here. And I want, uh, maybe I thought I could bring them up and you could kind of walk people through it since we're on the sure. idea of choice. Okay. So let's get to the, here's the book for everybody called No Absolutes, a framework for life. Just, if you get a chance, go on there. The links will be down there. The book's called No Absolutes. It's a framework for life. It'll, it'll help you make sense of a lot of questions. At least it did for me, so. Okay, let's get to it. here's here's we have for choice. Can you see that up on your side? I I, I mean I did create it, so I think I have a mental <laughs> image of it, but it is pretty so small on my screen there. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So 
you know, the whole idea how I see this grand tapestry of things is that there's an infinite sea of potentiality. As that potentiality moves closer and closer to reality, it becomes a set of probabilities. And as we move throughout our days, as we have the thoughts we have, speak the words we speak, uh, make the choices we make, that those probabilities fold down and reality is generated. And, you know, I, I like to, because a lot of people have deja vu experiences. Right. And I, and I like to, you know, kind of use this to say, when you have all of those probabilities, you know, you're just one little movement away from, you know, taking a left or taking a right, where the almost exact moment in time could have unfolded, it would have just been a little bit different. And we're kind of perceiving both of those at the same time. Now, this gets into, you know, quantum physics a bit. Um, and so they just redid the double slit experiment. Uh, are you familiar with the double slit experiment? Um, yeah, where sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's a wave. Sometimes it's a, uh, a, a, particle. a particle, but it just depends on who we're lying to, right? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I think the... The way I kind of like to describe it is is uh, that you're shooting electrons through two different slits, and on the back there's a there's a wall, and on where those electron hits, that's called an interference pattern. And so when they notice that the electrons would be almost traveling through both of the holes and then pick which one they were going to. Um, and then they would, you know, the, the original experiment was it's a wave until there's an observation and that mm -hmm. observation collapses the waveform into a particle, similar to how kind of like a choice would collapse the probabilities into reality. Uh, they re they redid that experiment with neutrinos and they had a really, really, uh, sensitive setup and they found that neutrinos were actually traveling through both slits at the same time. Wow. So, and then, you know, there would be an instant where one would completely just disappear and the other one would uh, impact the detector. But they were able to detect the neutrino in both slits at the same time. So kind of folding back into how reality unfolds in, in my hypothesis here is, is that those probabilities that you see, you get those, those deja vu. Those are, those are right next to that sensor right before it hits the sensor and is actually determined where it's going to be that observation effect you, it's both of them are still in the slit both of those probabilities of what could happen next are still a potential right in front of you and then one of them happens and one of them doesn't but our brains are these this is giant pattern recognition machine and so it's always observing these patterns and so sometimes you know that pattern was close enough to how we compile reality, which um, <clears throat> there's an estimate I saw a long time ago. It takes some four seconds for us to kind of process reality. It's already happened. Uh, it's just kind of what our, you know, the, the function of our brain and it's the function of every brain. So we kind of all live on a pretty consistent reality. Um, but that also gets into, you know, how 
when you have very traumatic events or when your adrenaline starts pumping, we, we perceive these time dilations where time slows down and time, you know, it seems to almost stop sometimes or time speeds up uh, whenever you're having fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, so there's, you know, there's related phenomena, but from a physical level, this is how I see uh, physical reality kind of unfolding. And then after it unfolds, you know, our choice is reflected back out into the ether, if you will. And it interacts with all of the sea of potentialities, falls into a category of the next probable moments, and then the next reality based upon our next choice and our next choice and our next choice. And the, and, and the cumulative choices of everything in motion. In, in your model, if, if we take it back one step, in your model, would, would the brain be like the box that the slits are in? Like, how would that shape up? Well, the brain is going to be, we're giant transceivers. Okay. We're, uh, you know, we receive signals and we broadcast signals. Mm. Uh, and, you know, various sets of brain waves, frequencies, what have you, those are, you know, well-documented. Um it's also well documented that if you can induce those types of, of waves in the brain, you can induce sleep, you can induce, you know, lots of different types of uh, physical phenomena. So I think our brain is, you know, quantum at some aspects. So it is picking up on this, but then it takes those signals and due to the structure of the brain, then puts those signals and is kind of the, uh, the collection detector at the at the end of the experiment. It so, seems to, so both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna take it there almost. Like if if we can apply this model to us, and and you know, part of the model is environment, experience, perspective, thoughts, and actions. And at the end of your explanation, you talked about how that reality ball goes out into the ether and then affects other choices and starts the process over again. It almost seems that the, and this, and tell me if this sounds crazy, but it seems to me that everything around us is also having a choice in some weird sort of way. Like we know that, you know, plants talk to each other and, right. and all these other life forms talk to each other. Can your mm -hmm. model be applied to the other forces of life out there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's all, that's all part of this interwoven tapestry of information. Um, Cause everything that's in motion is is impacting the next unfolding moment of reality um and you could call those choices uh you know sometimes we call them chemical reactions sometimes yes. we call them pheromones sometimes yep. we call them you know uh you know uh, acts of god <laughs> yeah <laughs> even right um but all of these things that when they happen they are going to be propelled out and they're going to influence all of the next happenings of reality yeah it, it it brings me to a, a another interesting jump off point that takes us to psychedelics i'm a huge fan of psychedelics and, and i have found at least for me and multiple people that i've talked to is there's this sort of communion with nature if you take like even a small dose of mushrooms or most most psychedelics but for this particular argument i'll use psilocybin on big doses of psilocybin and if you if you look back to the different tribes or indigenous people, you can see their connection with nature. And it seems to me that obviously plants can't speak English, 
but they can use different hormones and they can use different pheromones to communicate with each other. And when you're in a heightened state of awareness, I think you can pick up on those things. I think that in a weird sort of way, by consuming this type of, you know, chemical that is also present in plants in a weird sort of way, it gives you the ability to communicate with them. Is, is that just wacky or do you think that there's something to that? Oh, there's definitely something to it. Um, you know, uh, start with mushrooms just themselves. Uh, right. It's the only thing that breathes oxygen and exhales carbon dioxide in the plant kingdom or fungus kingdom, as it were. But, you know, what we could, we kind of consider mushrooms and kind of like plants, but they're actually much more similar to, to mammals and, and this side of life than they are to the plant kingdom. Uh, and then you also have, uh, so they have, uh, are you familiar with Paul Stamets? I am. Yes. So Paul's done some really interesting studies on, you know, just the effects of all the different mushrooms and whatnot, but also the effects on localized environments and fungus networks. The mycelium actually create a communication network under the ground between different species of plants and trees. And it's not just a communication network, it's also a resource sharing network as they, they'll share different resources throughout this, this fungal structure. Uh, so, and then when you fast forward that in the humans, they've put people under fMRIs when they're under, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or LSD and other psychoactive components. And they've actually detected novel pathways in the brain. So regions of the brain that typically aren't connected, all of a sudden are connected. So now instead of your very, you know, your, your sensory data for your visual cortex, just hitting the visual cortex and being processed through that mechanism. Now, all of a sudden there's novel connections to your auditory complexes. And so this is my idea, my hypothesis is this is where you get a lot of like synesthesia, where people yeah. see colors, hear, you know, uh, hear colors, things like that. But to your to your point, to your question, it, yeah, I think those connections are actually, you know, we're giant transceivers, antennas. And so we're we're receiving more information that sensory information is being processed in greater portions of our brain and through that process we are going to naturally pick up just more signals more information uh more data about our environment about what's around us you know there's a lot of very interesting aspects of people having you know shared hallucinations and not just you know oh i i kind of saw something but oh yeah we all observe this thing clear as day no question about it well, how could that happen? Well, you know, there we could go into that pretty deep, but if you just look at those kind of that bits of information we just talked about, if all of these novel connections are being made, it's going to be dictated not just about the internal environment, but also the external environment. So all these people sharing the same external environment and the same the same abundance of information and being very attenuated to it, all making their choices about how to proceed with this experience. Now, all of a sudden, you have a symphony that starts to, to happen. Um, you know, 
I, and then if we look at other cultures, like a Sufi culture, for instance, they have this, this whirling dervish dance where they put themselves into a trance, essentially, and it becomes a group event. Um, so similar states can be, do, be induced without, you know, uh, like a psychoactive substance. But we produce all those psychoactive substances in our brain as well. Yeah, and 5-MeO-DMT, uh, you know, seeps out of our pineal gland. Uh, we have, you know, the ability, you know, we have all these serotonins and dopamines and norepinephrine and all these other things that when at high levels produce very interesting results. And you can induce that via psychoactive substances. You can via, you know, extreme exercise. Um, I've been wanting to train for an ultra marathon for a while and I've gotten up to about 50 miles a week. And wow. I'll tell you what, when you go on those big long runs, it is uh, you know, people talk about the runner's high, but once you go on a really long run and you really stress your body, all of a sudden you get into just really hallucination. I mean, you know, people claim to see all sorts of stuff on some of these crazy 240 mile races. That is so crazy. This is a great point. Would you, you had shared a story with me about psychedelics and running. Would you share that story with me and my audience? Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, I decided one day down in the New Mexican desert uh, and with an open window of opportunity that I was going to have a bit of a vision quest. And I was left to my own devices with a whole bunch of mushrooms. <clears throat> so uh, I took the mushrooms and I was compelled to run. So uh, I probably ate about five, six grams of mushrooms and I just went out and started running. And all of a sudden, I was, instead of the normal, like, hallucinatory state, I was in a, uh, basically a, a flow state. Um, my mind was working a million miles a second. My body was moving better than it ever did. Uh, I ended up running 30-some miles and getting sunburned that day. That's so cool. <laughs> and then... You know, not. I woke up the next morning and I, everything hurt on my body. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what did I do to myself? You know, I had little water blisters. Everything was sore. And so naturally, I decided, well, let's do it again. Let's see what happens. <laughs> naturally. <laughs> naturally. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did it again. Uh, and to my surprise, as soon as I went out and started running, I felt great the soreness started to go away and all of a sudden I was running up hills again and running around. And I did another 20 some miles the second day. Um, my water blisters popped. I was red as beet red as could be. Um, and then the third day I woke up and I actually didn't feel bad. And so I said, well, naturally let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did it again. Uh, all told I went through about an ounce of mushrooms or so in three days uh, under the sun and a couple interesting takeaways. One, uh, it allowed me to be very, very active with running and it put my, it reset my body. Um, I went from being pretty overweight at the time to being able to just go out and run eight miles and it's not a bad thing at all. Uh, and then I also don't get sunburned anymore, which is fascinating. That is and fascinating. I had first heard of this from Paul Stamets. Uh, he had mentioned that on an epic mushroom dose down in, in the tropics of Mexico or something, he got sunburned and he hadn't been sunburned again. And I was like, huh. And that was 
four years ago or so, and I have yet to encounter another sunburn. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's it's mind-blowing to me to think about the potentials. There's a lot of – I can't think of the name of the book, but there's a book that talks about indigenous tribes in South America just all of a sudden – they just do this. They just get up and then they'll go run like an ultra marathon and then they'll do it again. You know, so there's there's plenty of evidence to support kind of a similar thing that happened to you. Have you um, have you thought to yourself, man, maybe I should see if this was an anomaly or have you found some guinea pigs to try it on or or <laughs> have you found a way to uh, test out your theory? Uh, I have. Um, I've performed a few mushroom ceremonies now for people. Um and I was able to duplicate my results of, you know, just super energetic, um, not hallucinatory states, but flow states where, you know, you're able to accomplish just about anything you could imagine running up mountains. Um, and people who are out of shape or in less than great shape, um, you know, men, women. So, yeah, it's a duplicatable process, too, which I find fascinating as a researcher and just somebody who's interested in human performance. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting to me that there are people out there who are skeptical about psychedelics, but it might be the one of the only things in science that is definitely something that can be repeated. Like if you take X amount of mushrooms, you will have a trip, you know, you will have a thing. I was not aware. I've been aware of the feeling of uh, clarity and visions and, you know, almost different dimensions and the experiencing of time but i have never attempted to try and push my body in a certain way and i i, I could see how it would work it makes me makes me want to give it a whirl out there it's it sounds fascinating and I, I i've yet to read that part on statements where he about the sunburn and stuff like that but there's plenty of evidence out there it's a fascinating story it was um it was on a joe rogan podcast ah. i think he mentioned it uh yeah it's it's a really fascinating thing um, because it does have a consistent duplicatable right. experience. And, you know, when you can, I, I, I mean, this is I, people who, you know, a couple of people who weren't really even able to walk all that well, were all of a sudden jogging up a mountain. So, you know, you could take any pharmaceutical drug in the world <laughs> and you're not going to be able to do that. But the 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 symbiotic nature of psilocybin mm. and the in the human experience um, to me is clear as day. Um, now, I think there's also methods to that madness, right? Uh, sure. Yeah, people who are you know, if you're just down in twelve grams of mushrooms and looking to go, you know, talk to whatever entity you have in your mind. Well, you know, there's something to be said about that, sure, because it is an experience. But I think, you know, much more to just uh, everyday health, uh, longevity, uh, ability to, you know, um, be physical. Uh, adding in just a little bit of mushrooms combined with physical exercise and sunlight seems to be a very interesting recipe that I think definitely should be explored a lot more uh, scientifically and, and through research. Uh, I think actually Paul just got a $60 million fundraise for his uh, psilocybin mushroom company. 
<laughs> so wow. I think it's I think it's coming down the pike too. Yeah, I it it really makes sense if if you look at the literature coming from these different psilocybin experiments with PTSD or mm -hmm. you know depression, and we take we take those particular studies that most people have read, and we combine it with your your ability to go from not being a runner at all just to be being able to get up and go run and we also add in the fact that it it does a end run around the default mode network and it changes these parts of the brain well that's i had a friend whose dad had a stroke and he had to hmm. teach himself how to talk again and the way right. that it was explained to me was like okay he had a stroke so you know broca's area or something was damaged but if he practiced and he focused and he got, he found a way to talk again, to do an end run around that part of the brain. Well, mm -hmm. mushrooms are already kind of doing that. They're, if, if they are, you know, lighting up different centers and allowing for different connections to be made, it would make sense that you could get over depression. You could get over PTSD. You could move your arm again. You could go run. You could get over all these things because you are engaging parts of the brain that help your body act in a certain way. And it's that mind body connection. That's maybe right. being healed or, or being connected for the first time in a long time or something like that. It's fascinating to think about. I agree. Uh, you know, I think, I think the demonization of those things is getting close to an end. Um, uh, at the same time, it, it's going to be an uphill battle too, because, once you start to, you know, sadly, all of this comes back around to profit and money. Yeah. Um, why would, why would a company, why would companies who are making billions of dollars in treatments want to find a cure for something? Yeah, there's no, I, there's nothing there. You're right. I mean, yeah, you know, the people who are genuine healers and want good for people. Yeah, we all want the cure for something. Uh, but once again, you know, these good ideas, who's behind them, who's, who's pulling the strings, uh, what's their motivation? Uh, and I think that's, you know, we'll probably cycle back around to that often because that's just the state of our society right now. Is it not? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, you can see it happening right now. Like I, I like to follow a lot of the companies and the people that are, I like to read the studies to see what's happening. And it mm -hmm. seems to me there's a pretty big divide beginning to happen in the world, especially of psilocybin. And it's like, we want to patent this particular way. We want to patent oh, yeah. set and setting. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't be able to be a healer. You should come in for <laughs> treatments, you know? And some people are like, you just need it once and learn how to do it yourself. And then that's the beauty of it, you know? And But you can see that fight happening. You can see almost the level of greed and selfishness beginning to creep in under the guise of healing. It's... It's a little well, sinister. Uh, the same thing happened with marijuana, right? Right. Um, and, and if you look at if you look at the the scope of the the marijuana business, by and large, all of the people who were local farmers and all of these things have been pushed out of the business. Uh, you know, state regulations uh, are so cumbersome for a lot of these people when it comes to testing and labeling and all of this stuff that you know has been put in put into play by the states that there's only a handful of companies who can actually pay to play. Uh, and I, I think, you know, everything runs that risk in our society. Uh, mm. Any uh, just because of the nature and the structure of how things are built. 
um, the reality of the situation is, is that the richest people are getting <clears throat> excessively richer while most everybody else is continuing to get poorer and poorer on a relative scale of things. And <clears throat> that's, in, that's just because of the, the structure of society that we have. Um, you know, it's always geared towards making a dollar for one. Uh, and then whenever there is a great novel idea or a solution or a potential cure or anything like this, it always becomes commoditized, regulated, patented. And before you know it, the, you know, the, it's, it, it becomes a double edged sword and the edge that you're getting is the edge that you really don't want. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's could you imagine if the wheel was patented? Like, okay, no one else can use this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you know that happened in the tech world pretty pretty heavily. Uh, there's patent trolls out there who are like, oh no, you can't send an electronic message without paying me money. So you know those those lawsuits are still happening today with all sorts of different things. It's all a nightmare when it, the patent process, and then especially when you combine that with, you know, oh we're just going to offshore it and ship it out to somebody who's going to steal the IP anyway and release a product for a fraction of the cost. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's that old adage: you get what you pay for. Uh, <laughs> but the whole patent process on in and of itself is is limiting to people um it, it it empowers corporations and and limits ingenuity in my personal opinion yeah it just seems like you know imagine if everybody if if somebody came up with a great idea and then other people could make that idea better without any consequences i think everybody would be better off I, I like i don't have any patents so maybe this is just some guy talking and complaining that he doesn't have patents but <laughs> it seems to me like there's a lot of great ideas out there that if we're allowed could be built upon by other great people and it would just make our world better that brings well, me to another slide i'm sorry go ahead well i was going to say and that's you know that's really kind of the the advent of open source technology yeah. out in the world uh and and it holds true i mean you know because of open source technology we've had incredible you know, programs and systems and things like blockchain technology and all this other stuff come out into the wide world with the potential to really change the world. Um, so you're exactly right in your statement. Yeah, I I think that's a I think what we're talking about is the the breaking free of chains. I think that that's why the world is in such chaos right now because you can't put that genie back in the bottle, whether it's cryptocurrency or whether it's different types of energy or whether it's the mag shifting magnetic North Pole that's allowing people to wake up or where we are in space or it's the age of Aquarius. Maybe it's all these things combined, but like that's what gets me excited is that I can see a different level of freedom being born. And just just you and I talking, just the fact that we got to meet up and we've begun having this relationship and talking about things that we both have in common and we both find interesting and we're both being rewarded and we're on different parts of the planet. And this freedom, I think, is being born and the children that are born today are, are going to be subjected to ideas and, and, and freedoms that our grandparents could only dream of. Absolutely. And 
uh, on the other side of the fence, uh, trials and tribulations. Yes. Um, you know, again, I think looking at the system from a very objective and very large view, uh, you know, we have a broken system at scale. We have, uh, you know, it's, you know, from the top down, the everybody's bought and paid for at some level of the game. You can't, you know, just because it costs so much money to play that game. Uh, you know, I've, I've been bare, I've borne witness to certain instances that I've heard others, but you know, I've, I saw a person running for a local seat uh, lose. And then what did they do? Uh, I was talking to him two weeks after the fact, and all of a sudden, you know, they got a hundred thousand dollar offer for their next campaign. So long as they decided to, you know, toe the line, so to speak. Never heard from that person again, but they won their next campaign. Imagine that. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of when you have that substructure, because at, you know, at the root level, structure kind of dictates what happens at the substructure dictates what happens at a reality level, like mm-hmm. uh, the color of your eyes, for instance, color of your eyes is because the structure in there doesn't absorb the color of light that's reflected back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so these substructures of how everything's built have a grand, grand influence on the final result, the end product. Uh, and, when you have a, a system that, you know, was designed to represent the will of the people in the West, and you have on top of that another system that allows anybody to pay just about any amount if you pull the right strings and cross the right eyes, or dot the right eyes across the right teeth, uh, then all of a sudden you have a, a, a conflict. Well, who wins in that conflict? We know who wins money wins in that conflict just because of the way that the world exists. And now all of a sudden money's pulling all of the strings. So who are those people with the money? What is their intent? What, why are they pulling the strings? It completely corrupts the, the process that's in place for one, but worse, it limits all of the future options to have these ideas like an open source thing and, limiting these patent protections and stuff. So we could actually have like, you know, 3d printing is a great example. They used to call rapid prototyping machines because that was the, that was the patent. The day that that patent finally expired was the day that 3d printers were born into the world. And 3d printers are a fantastic tool where you have all these open source communities making all of these CAD designs, people making adjustments to them and, wonderful prototyping uh, is happening for all sorts of different really cool things out there. And then because now I can have a $500 3D printer and I can stand on the the shoulders of all these giants without having to cut red tape and jump over walls, uh, all of a sudden I can experiment in my house. And how many genius ideas are, you know, there used to be the old uh, it was born in the garage and then was a billion dollar company. And that was kind of the nineties Google story, right? You don't hear those stories anymore. Nothing's born in the garage anymore. Uh, the barrier to entry to all of these things has become so prohibitive. Uh, and it stays prohibitive because the people who have already entered, they make a lot more money by keeping it prohibitive. Yeah. 
and you know, so we're we're stuck in a bit of a catch twenty two uh, when it comes to that. Uh, but to your point, we also have this global communication. We have this abilities that we've never had before to have conversations to actually, you know, take these ideas, flush them out, find like minded people, and to impact change. I I feel. Yeah, it it brings me back to your book, like. You know, you, you get into the, you both talk about fractals and you also elude to them and you make different examples that help me to see the world differently. And, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. First off, I'll start with, there was a quote, I forgot who said it, but it was something along the lines of, you can see the entire universe in a grain of sand. And I think that we can see ourselves in other structures and it is fractal. You gave in your book, you gave the idea about how our lives are like the changing course of a river. And if you look, if you look at mankind as a river, it's flooding because, because there are these dams, there are these prohibitive rules and regulations are like dams on this river. But if you look at what's happening in the Netherlands right now, all these tractors, like, Oh, you're not going to let us farm? Okay, we're going to block everything. It mm -hmm. seems to me that the like the popu the populist revolts that are happening around the world, whether it was the food cart gentleman in Tunisia or the yellow vests in France or the BLM here or whatever label you want to put on it, it seems like there's this upswell of energy, this upspring of water that is about to flood over everything, and like the people in positions of authority are like, oh no, the dam's about to break. But that's the idea that I, one of the ideas I get by reading your book is seeing the world as, or humankind as a floating river, to see see each one of us as our own little raindrop that's eroding down the side of the mountain and following a path that water has gone before us. And I, I, I want to say thank you for that. Like it helped me see the world differently. I, I really appreciate that. Is, some, is that something that, you had in mind when you were writing the book? Um, yeah, it was so, you know, you had mentioned last time uh, about how a lot of this seemed original. You haven't read it anywhere. Uh, I would say a lot of reason for that is because I didn't, I, I, I didn't go down a traditional path. I didn't read every philosophy book before I decided to write something about philosophy. In fact, I read none of them pretty much. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and it was all derived from personal experience, really, uh, on top of my, you know, research and passion for all sorts of different systems, you know, how, how the world works, how the human body works, how ecosystems work, all of that. And then combining it with, you know, really the underlying how how things work at a, just a general scale, I got to the point where, you know, I was able to just envision that. Uh, you know, and once you can see it, I think you can attest to it. You can kind of see it everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and it just becomes this ubiquitous perspective that you can now harness to look at the world in a little bit of a different way. And that little bit of a different way has been exceptionally beneficial to me, uh, not just to understand the world and uh, pick apart what's happening, but how to deal with that on, you know, an emotional level, on a personal level. I mean, if you look at a lot of what's going on right now, um, people are in a state of hysteria. 
you know, for years, the past couple of years, they've been locked down. Everything that was good has been turned bad in one relative perspective or another, depending on where you are in the world and what your, your feelings towards a situation are. And on top of that, now you're, now you're, it's one crisis after another. Well, if you don't deal with these things psychologically, if you don't have a mechanism, a process, uh, an understanding of the world, uh, a, a way to dissect and view this uh, at a healthy level, you're, we're, we're seeing it. You have, you have people who are falling off the rails. You have an uptake of mass shootings. You have all sorts of craziness, crazy responses that are overblown responses to things that people don't even understand what they're responding to. They're simply reacting because that's the only thing that you can do in a state of hysteria is just react. Uh, so, you know, that's from just a big general level, without having that ability to see that flow of, of humanity, uh, to see the how, you know, the different perspectives of how reality is driven. Um, to to be able to understand this information, you're going to be lost awash in that in that river, and you're in you're going to be stuck up against the dam, and the pressure is going to build, and the pressure is going to build, and there will be a problem. Uh, the dam will break. Uh, your your little existence will be completely overwashed by the the rush of the the other you know the whole world essentially uh and i think without having these conversations without you know reason being brought back in on the, to the table uh we end up in a very very detrimental and deleterious and dangerous state yeah it's that was really well put really well done it, it makes me think that in 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 your story, you use people being washed up against a dam and being caught. That seems to me a lot like absolute thinking. Like if you're if you have these absolutes and you're just washed up against this wall, and that's exactly what your book does, ladies and gentlemen. It's called No Absolutes, and here's why it's <laughs> awesome. If you look at where we're at today, I have found, and I think if you get the book and read this book, you too will come to the conclusion that. If you just take away the absolute, you take away that wall and you have this ability to be like, oh, well, maybe that's not true. In fact, that's probably not true. What about this? It's freeing. It's liberating. And I I want to take us to another slide because I would really I really want to get your opinion on this one here. So but it blows my mind to think about no absolutes. And I I know I keep saying it, but it's it's awesome. I I, I really appreciate the the way I that. Yeah, I think most people will. Can you check? Can you tell us a little bit about this slide? Yeah. Uh, so this is the logo of, of the book. Um, and the idea is, you know, a framework. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to be able to see those because yeah. I am blind at a distance <laughs> here. Uh, but, you know, I'll start with the center because I know what that one is. Okay. Uh, and it's balance. <laughs> uh, and so you know at the center of all this stuff is you know it's very important and just kind of tapers onto what we were just talking about is you need to find a balance uh and in order to find a balance well first you have to have a foundation that you can stand on if you're standing in quicksand uh 
really hard to find some balance. <laughs> uh, however, if you can create a perspective of the world that gives you a solid foundation, not one that is absolute, but one that's amorphous and one that changes as you gain more evidence, as you have more experiences, as you look at different perspectives, then you have a, a, a foundation that you can establish a state of balance. And being in a state of balance is, you know, people talk about it from multiple different perspectives and have methodologies about it. And there's meditations and all of this. But I think fundamentally, I, most people understand what balance is. Uh, and you don't need to get too metaphysical with it uh, to really kind of convey the idea that when you are balanced and when you can imagine yourself in life being balanced, while everything really moved along at a much more harmonious and synchronous pace uh you know you were happier uh, the the uh, the paths that you went down were more fruitful um you know your relationships improve it's when we get off kilter when we let things affect us and uh we lose that balance is all of a sudden when we start to you know have very negative emotions get angry uh feel depressed uh all of these types of, you know, uh, what are mostly called mental mental health disorders these days, um, which, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. But again, if we're looking at that as a perspective, it's going to be, you know, you have to take the totality of everything. Where does that all come from? It's an environmentally driven thing combined with a, uh, a genetic thing. Uh, and, you know, just like sudden setting can, you know, change somebody from, you know, walking through hell on a trip or walking through a, a Disney movie, little fluffy jungle. Uh, those, you know, that perception of of where we're at in life and and how we got there is, you know, can very much impact our experience of reality. And then, you know, the tools around it, the points around it were just kind of little axioms that I'd kind of just uncovered in my life uh, or, you know, somebody said to me at random or something like that, like, uh, accept gifts with grace, uh, which doesn't seem, you know, it's pretty innocuous. But when you really get into that, uh, there is a lot to be said about that, because why does somebody give you something? Somebody gives you something because you know, despite everything else that's happening in the world, despite all of their, you know, relationships, all of their dramas, all of this stuff, they thought of you and had the intention of giving you something to not honor that, to not accept that with grace is going to not only make that person feel bad, but not, you're not going to have the proper perspective of the gift. Now, how does that influence the future choices? of both you and the person giving the gift. Well, person giving the gift is going to be less likely to give gifts. And you as the receiver, well, you're not bettering yourself by being aware that other people are thinking about you in this way. And so you're limiting your choices in the future of how you're going to act and operate in any given encounter. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, it's awesome. It's in... I'm going to read just a couple other ones because I, I want to I want to say something after I read some of the other ones. And it's be aware. Don't prejudge. Choose your words wisely. Truth is relative. Seek out new information. 
Focus on the change that you can make. All things change. Reflect. And I'm for those of the for people that might just be listening, it's an incredible diagram. That's there's a cube, and inside the cube is a triangle, and then there's a line for balance. And what I want people who are watching this and listening to this to understand is the relevance of the cube and the different dimensions of the cube. It seems to me like a freeing way to think, which probably ties into framework. If people do have mental problems, like, and we all kind of do, sure. but you, you can just turn a little bit. If you can just turn your thoughts a little bit to a different side of the cube, then you can see a different dimension. And that should be able to give you something to focus on, to pull you out of that mental condition you're in, whether it's the idea of getting a gift gracefully or you know, choosing your words wisely and how they affect other people and how that reflects back on you and how truth is relative. What was, how did you come up with the idea to create this diagram in a cube like that? How'd you do that? <laughs> uh, that was, uh, that was just uh, grit and determination. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, you've, you've gone down the book writing path a bit, I think. Right. Yeah. So it's not easy to write a book. It's not. It's, you know, you think it's, you think it's going to be easy when you started, especially when you're ramped up on the idea, but you know, a couple months of sloshing into the thing, all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is actually pretty damn difficult. <laughs> what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I knew the overall, the whole idea was, oh yeah, no absolutes. And then the framework for life came as I was writing it. Mm. Uh, and as I wrote these things, I started to see a cube. I started to see all of these different aspects and a lot, of, you know, they all deal with perspective at the end of the day. Uh, and to your point, you know, just one little turn of the cube alters that perspective. Yes. And, and that those alterations of perspective, everybody's familiar with. Uh, somebody opens the door for you, they, a stranger, and smiles at you and says, have a good day who doesn't work at wherever they just did it because they saw you coming that that'll change somebody's day in an instant. And it's yeah. just that little shift of perspective. Uh, and so as I was writing, the framework idea was born and then, you know, the cube seemed the natural, uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, sacred geometry uh, and the cube became the building block with the triangle inside as, you know, a more foundational building block. Uh, the, the intent was to have a second book that would expand on that a little bit, but we'll see when that comes out. <laughs> Again, <laughs> books are hard. <laughs> yeah, they are. It's, but there's, you touched upon something. There's something that begins to happen to you in that creative state. When you get to the point of like, oh, God, what, no one's going to read this. What am I doing? And then, or, you know, somewhere at that junction, another voice kicks in and is like, hang on, I got you. Just put the pen to paper. I'll write it for you. You know, it's almost <laughs> like something starts writing through you. And then it just, it's this weird idea of being in touch with maybe a higher consciousness that could be yourself or tapping into information well, that's all around us or. You know, I, I, lot, I think this is really attributed in antiquity to divine inspiration. Mm. Right. Uh, that's, that's what it is typically called. Um, now, you could you can look at it. That, so I have similar instances, uh, mostly when, you know, I have a really hard programming challenge and I just can't figure it out. 
Well, I've learned over the years that if, you know, if I can't figure it out in 20 minutes, I just go to bed and I wake up the next day and my mind has figured it out. And it's, and I'll solve it within the first two minutes of playing with it. Uh, so what's happening there, right? Um, and there's quite a few perspectives to look at that. Uh, one that I like to look at is, you know, for instance, when, when you go to sleep and, you, and your brain's processing all this information, all of these little subconscious things happening are they're, it's reevaluating every little sensory data throughout the day. It's adjusting, you know, behaviors and chemical release based upon, you know, all of the cumulative actions of your life and contrasted with today's sensory data. And we and that's, you know, we write our memories and we do all of these other things and all of these processes foment in our sleep. And then you wake up and all of a sudden the pathway to understand that information, that sensory data now exists. And I think that what you're doing, you know, we're tapping into just that greater source of information. You know, again, we're antennas, we're picking up all this information. And it might not be, you know, you might not even know that it was when you walked, when you decided to take a walk because uh, you couldn't solve something that it created that right pathway to do it. And because you saw a sign that gave you the hint of that brought in an, uh, an old memory that you allowed you to solve this new problem. You know, you could probably dissect that with the proper experiments and a lot of, you know, a lot of funding and blah, 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 blah. But I don't think that that truly mattered. I think what really matters is, you know, that we're able to do that and tapping into that, you know, some call it the Akashic records, um, you know, that I, I like to call it, you know, the, the plane of information. Uh, but essentially we're, you know, we're all responding to all of these other movements and motions of everybody else. And we're experiencing this collective reality and that collective reality is, you know, always at some level divinely inspired. You're always, we're always moving within this sea of information, collecting more data and then making our next choice and thereby creating more data and implanting the choices of others and things around us, sometimes to a lesser extent, sometimes to a greater extent. Yeah. I, I like, I like the idea of marrying what you just said to the previous slide of choice. And I like to think of that story or writing these books and becoming that, that reality ball that goes out into the world and then it goes into someone else's little container. And like now, because of what you did, because of maybe the book I wrote, like the allowing yourself to become an inspiration or a ball of change for someone else. Like there's something so awesome about that that is worth more than any dollar amount to know yeah. that you've created something that can help another person make sense of a problem is its own reward. And I, I, I want everybody listening to this to know that if you're listening to this, you, you can do that. In fact, you have done it. You may not be conscious of it, but you have done it. But if you try to be conscious about it, you'll get better at it and it'll become addictive and it'll, it'll be something that becomes a positive agent for change in the world. And I, I, I hope everybody listening can do that. I hope they all get to feel what, what you and I are feeling. 
me as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's, as you said, it's liberating. Uh, yeah. That was, you know, I, I, and back to the beginning of what you said, you know, we all kind of are slaves in, a, in digital slaves of, in an instance, right? We're in, we're all, we're all a part of this greater machinery and, you know, being able to have liberation from that, because we're taught in school that things are X, Y, and C, A, B, and C, and blue, red, and green. And there's no question about it, because obviously these people, you know, it's written in a book. Why would you question it? <laughs> <laughs> it's written right there. <laughs> it's written right in front of you. Why would you question it? You know, and it, and and that creates a lot of problems. That absolutism, yeah. you know, puts people, you know, stuck in the desert in little boxes of sand. Uh, and it breeds all sorts of really, you know, bad things in the world. This tribalism that we have, the us versus them and all of these other things where it doesn't need to be that way. And just a subtle shift in perspective can allow you to really be liberated from that whole process. and then you get to choose what sort of what sort of processes in that big old machine that you want to be a part of that you that you do resonate with that you do identify with and not just because it feels good or your family does or your friends do or that's what you know the headline says but because you actually have a rational understanding or at least you have reasoned faith about what you're looking at in the world um, and to the, to the point, one of the, you know, words are important, choose your words wisely. Uh, you know, a lot of people use the word belief. Uh, and to me, belief is a dangerous word. Belief is a suspension of reason. If I'm believing you, I am suspending my ability to reason about the situation. And I'm just taking everything that you're saying as truth. Well, how can that be dangerous? I think we can see that it's very dangerous <laughs> whenever this happens. Uh, you know, just look at uh, things like believe the science, which is mm. ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous statement. Or, you know, when people are arguing these days, they believe a candidate, they believe uh, X, Y, and Z. Well, you're suspending your ability to logic and reason through these potential problems. That I find is one of the, the the largest travesties that's occurring on a daily basis. Um, you know, and it's one of the reasons that I've felt compelled to be, you know, do some podcasting and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I I believe that this Kool Aid will free us. I believe these black Nikes will get me to the mothership. You know, I I forgot there was a really incredible uh, American. Native American activist that I, I don't think it might've been Leonard Peltier, but mm. I, I remember him giving a speech about, you know what? He said almost the same thing. He's like, I'm sick and tired of people and their beliefs. Maybe you think, maybe, you know, but don't believe, but your beliefs causing your beliefs are causing problems and killing people. And it was, I should find out who it was. It was such a powerful speech that he gave. And like, I was like, that was the first time that I heard it and I was like, Oh my gosh, he's right. Like these, these beliefs are so overwhelming. And they, if we, if belief, belief wielded by the wrong person can end up enslaving people or genociding people, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it just goes to show how powerful we are. But yeah, Indeed. I like that. 
I, I think that beliefs become a framework that is limiting. Beliefs become a a box that you're trapped in, and and pretty soon those beliefs become so comfortable and so well, warm and that you don't want to leave. And it's one not of your own making, which mm. makes it all that much more dangerous. Because if you put yourself in your own box, at least you know where the box is. But if you put yourself into somebody else's box, now you've lost your own box and you don't know where the walls of the box are. You're, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that we have this influx of communication and yet we have such a lack of conversations like this. Agreed. Agreed. It, it's it's both scary and liberating to hear the words of some different cult leaders. You know, I hmm. I don't I'm not a, I'm not a fan of cults, but I am enamored with the way in which charismatic leaders have the ability to communicate in a way that is so powerful. And mm -hmm. you know, I. I remember reading about how corporations would study Charles Manson and Jim Jones and try to harness these ideas to get their message across, you know, and it's, and so, mm -hmm. I say it's scary because these, these ideas of communication can be used to wield incredible violence. But on the flip side of that, the same communications can be used to liberate people. And it's just, depends how which way they decide to go but this idea of communication this idea of absolutes and no absolutes this idea of thinking outside the box this idea of being trapped in the box it all happens in between the box in your head and you have that key to free it you know i i think that there's a there's a lot to be said about that me as well i wrote a book <laughs> a great book about it a great book about it I got another slide I want to take us to right here. How you doing on time? You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay, good. Oh, I hit the wrong button here. Excuse me for a minute. Okay. It's always something. It's always something. And it always will be something here. So this particular slide is the infinite sea of potential. Every conceivable possibility unfolding and affecting one moment to the next moment of reality. And... In the slides for people who are just listening, there's a series of three waves cresting, and it says choice and reality. I think this does a good job and is a beautiful metaphor for humanity. If you if you think of each of, of humanity as the ocean and each individual life as a wave, part of humanity, it rises up and then it falls. But it also fits well with our choice and our reality collapsing in on each other. And these were some of my interpretations, but maybe you can give – the actual interpretation of what it meant when you wrote it. Well, you're pretty on point. Um, you know, viewing, and I would actually probably add another infographic if I were to rewrite this today, uh, or maybe a movie. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's also interesting in that metaphor, when you're looking at the ocean, there's all sorts of very interesting phenomena that happen in the ocean. You have things like rogue waves or spike waves um, you have these massive gyres that, you know, just kind of slowly just, you know, churn. Um, and a, a lot of it's due to the structure of the ocean, but it's also the movement of the waves. 
And so there's a really cool video about a spike wave. Uh, they have a spike wave generator and all of a sudden you'll see moving water and then you see a wave that shoots up, you know, a hundred feet above the rest of the water line. And I, didn't have, all I never it, knew what a spike wave was. It, it, it's a similar phenomenon to like a rogue wave where it's just the right amount of motion in a, in a given area just puts more and more energy in a centralized location. And then all of a sudden that energy just escapes or just grows and creates a massive wave in the, in the instance of a rogue wave. Uh, and, you know, again, we see those similar things happen. We see momentum move around an idea, uh, you know, a place, um, you know, a, a fad, a TikTok video, these things. And then you see these spikes of now it becomes almost impossible to ignore. Uh, we also, you know, and so we see these kind of physical phenomena that we can relate to the human experience of humanity. And, you know, just like the river flowing, these different kind of thought experiments, these, these models that you can view in your head, they allow you to walk around a situation and view it from different perspectives where, you know, you, you're not attached to one of those perspectives and instead you're viewing the system as a whole or as close to a whole as you can view it. And then you're able to make a more informed choice about what's happening, have a better perspective, able, you know, on a personal level, able to deal with your emotional responses to the situations that are happening, uh, you know, able to mentally put yourself in proper places of understanding of, you know, it's always something. It was a perfect example. Well, it all, and it is always going to be something. <laughs> yep. But when you're aware of that, then instead of, oh, it's always something, is it's always something. <laughs> and there's a very important distinction in that perspective. And I think you would agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, I never thought about this until hearing what you just said, but it's such a beautiful way like now that now that I've heard the way you've described it, another idea comes to me in that looking at this is sort of like looking at trigonometry, like sines and cosines and waves of destruction. Or I think about being in the ocean and surfing and seeing how waves come in sets. You know, it is mm -hmm. going to be something like that. And in some ways, I wonder if this is just a weird way of reality showing us mathematics in a different way like it allows you to be part of the sine or the cosine waves and it allows you to participate in the grand geometry or trigonometry that is the daily lives we live you know there's it's it's mm -hmm. so beautiful in so many ways to see how this infographic connects and there's probably a million ways i'm not even thinking of right now but it's it's fascinating to think can you talk like what what does it mean when we, we spoke earlier about reality collapsing in on itself what, what what do you think it how do these waves represent that uh well i would say you know it, it's not so much of a collapsing on itself it's that it reaches a, a point of of no return essentially a phase shift uh you know like all of a sudden water gets too cold and then it turns into ice that it has a phase shift well energy gets to a certain point a potentiality of all and then the probabilities and then reality and reality is that phase shift where 
all of those probabilities have stacked up to a point where now now there's going to be for us a physical occurrence in reality um I've talked about, I talked a little bit of, I was actually talking about this slide when the funnel was up because I couldn't see it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, so it's, it's more of a phase shift. And so when we have this, these waves crashing together, it's all this information, all these choices, all of this motion, all of the thoughts, all of the words, all the deeds, all the choices compacting into a moment. And our perception of that moment is what we call reality. Yeah, I also see in here, like, I see the three waves and I see, like, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, (laughs) you know, Miley Cyrus. Like, there's this pattern and this raising of waves, not exactly the same height, but the same form and the same breaking in, you know, a wave, I think a wave height, I think a wave breaks in water that's half as deep of its height. And there's probably a formula you could use to apply that to reality in other ways you know there's so much to learn just by watching this which brings us full circle to the idea that you can see the nature of reality in the grain of sand just Mm -hmm. the way you can see the rise and fall of new addition or in sync in the three waves ahead of us so can you see it in this image right here it's and again again you probably get tired of hearing this but this is all in the book no absolutes and there's it's it's graphics like this that Benjamin, that, that that really one that really got me to want to talk to you because I've never seen it represented this way. And I think that even someone without a background in mathematics or without a background in science can look at the infographics and be like, that makes a lot of sense to me. And they'll be able to actually grasp concepts that maybe only get taught in a pre-calculus class, but they can look at this graph of a wave and be like, oh, I get it. It's a beautiful way of describing a complex situation in the form of a picture that allows a person to come up with their own idea of it. And that, that to me has always been the best mentors to me is someone that would use the Socratic method or just ask me a question and force me to come up with the answer. And I think that that's what these images do. Well, I'm glad the intention got through. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, I, you know, we talked about it a bit as above. So below is a, yeah. is a, is an old Gnostic saying. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of perspectives to that. And, you know, just like being able to view the instinct Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera through this, it falls right into that, as above, so below. We can see these movements, these motions, and, you know, they're almost predictable. Almost <laughs> is the key word there. Um, but when you get to larger scales, then they become even more predictable. Uh, you know, for instance, and this is an interesting segue, uh, city of Chicago, uh, some program, AI program that they ran their crime data for was able to predict uh, future crime up to one week in advance with 90% accuracy. So they claim. Uh, you know, this is this is exactly that method being applied, probably not in the way that it should. right right uh but but it's exactly so they're taking the topology of the city and they're taking the crime rates of different you know types of crimes and they're and they're running that through time and based with some other things and they're able to predict with pretty decent results of the occurrence of the next incident 
you know, this is, this is again, the, you know, the potentiality, the probability and the reality coming into play. Uh, again, not a good application for this. I think, you know, a lot of us our age ish solved minority report. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that wasn't good for anybody. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes uh, I think it's just Peter Thiel, like frantically reading Philip K. Dick novels. Like I can make this happen. I can do this. <laughs> well, it, it's it's very interesting. You know, they're if, kind of looking at science fiction, and right. then and then reality. You know, fast forward fifty to a hundred years, <laughs> and it's it's uncanny how many things from science fiction's past the past make it into science science's present. Yeah, how much of how much of science fiction readers are just clairvoyant priests? You know, it's I heard a pretty interesting argument that said uh, our memories come from the future, and it would make sense that someone is somehow in a state where they see the future, but really they're seeing a memory, and then they're able to recreate it. You know, like. I should look up where I, where I saw that out. Yeah, it's it's and it, and it gives it gives a lot of credence to science fiction writers as you know we we think of them as visionaries, but might it be better to think of them as memories or memories? You know. Well, it, it's interesting. I, you know, in my model of information, I I would I kind of came to the conclusion with my research that the universe is a four dimensional hypersphere. And it, I'm sure you're familiar with like a tesseract. I am. Uh, yes. Yes. And you've probably seen the animation where it's kind of all flowing through each, yep. other, each other. So the idea behind a four spatial dimension object like that is, is that every single point would be connected to every other single point in the object. So every single potentiality that could be kind of exists out there. And then as those potentialities get closer to reality, they, they turn into those probabilities, that 90% prediction. And then the reality is when that crime's actually committed in what we were talking about before. And so when you have this, this interconnection of all information, you know, and this ties back into the Akashic records, the, right. the divine, divine inspiration, uh, you know, you're drawing from the potentiality of all things, essentially, in my model. And if you're drawing from the potentiality of all things, those could be future things, those could be past things, those could be, you know, multi multi-dimensional things, those could be multi-universal things, uh, you know, and, you know, all of that's, you know, we could go down those rabbit holes as much as you like. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I think there's something to be said about our lack or our, our, our language that is lacking. Like we have an incomplete language. We don't thoroughly understand what people mean when they say words to us, because each one of us has a different definition of that same word, especially when you look at different cultures and some tonal oh, yeah. languages and, you know, you take George from Caucasian Acres and you put him in Hawaii and there's all these people from Japan <laughs> and China. And uh, I, I don't why, why am I rude? I'm not. I just always talk like this. What my hands? Is that offensive? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be, you know, but it's so mm -hmm. difficult that we can yeah, actually have a conversation and a civil conversation 
where we can get points across without having a better language. But I think we're on the cusp of that. And I, I think what you were talking about, about the Tesseract and each point being connected and being able to see different points of view, I think we're just beginning to get to this point where we can communicate effectively. I, we're definitely trying. At least some of us are. <laughs> uh, you know, there's on the there's other ends of the spectrum too. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really interesting because you know you see like debates these days. You know, you know, presidentials, just people on the internet, whatever. And you know, they start off, and you know, it's well, I'm going to say it this way because I feel that these words mean this. And well. I'm going to say it this way because I feel that these words mean this. When, you, when we don't have an agreement of the definition of the words that we're using, right? We're never going to have an agreement, uh, you know. Because if you think that up means down, and I think that up means up, we're going to be at odds. <laughs> yeah, we want the same thing. <laughs> Imagine that, <laughs> Benjamin. I'm having an absolute blast, and um, I would talk to you longer. I got to go drive this truck. Where can people find you? What What would you want to leave people with? What's a What's a Give us where you're at. All the links will be down below. But I would like to hear people hear from you where you're at and what what you're working on and where they can find you. And of course, we'll be back next week. But let me let me throw it to you. All right. Uh, BenjaminCGeorge.com is the hub for all of my things. Uh, these days, I'm you know I'm working a lot with automation and and my lifelong passion project, which is uh, the Terra Libre project. Uh, and the idea is, you know, all these things we're talking about, how can you actually use these these conversations and solve real societal problems? Uh, and so that's kind of my my current focus these days. Uh, and you can find more on that on the website. Again, BenjaminCGeorge.com. And thank you so much, George. I'm loving the conversation. Can't wait for next week. Yeah, me too. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back next week. Um, do yourself a favor. Pick up the book. It's no absolutes. Free your mind have great conversations and try to inspire people. That's what we got for today. So, uh, Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.